open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. And again, we have the privilege of speaking tonight on the subject, The King Returns. And we're looking at verses 11 through 16 in this 19th chapter, and I want to move right into our text tonight and get started in this study. Uh, This is the most important event in the book of Revelation. Verse number 11 is what we've been waiting for in this long, long study of this book. Uh, The book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and this is the revelation. Verse number 11 of chapter 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war." His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron." And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to remind you again of chapter 5 in Revelation. If you turn back there just a few pages to the fifth chapter, uh, this is the scene in heaven where uh, it begins the story of how Christ will be revealed. I'm not going to read this entire chapter. Uh, It is one of my favorite ones, and I would encourage you from time to time to read this over again, and and it just reminds you, really, of the majesty of Christ. But if you look in Revelation 5, verse number 1, John says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book... The four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. In chapter 19, verse number 11, John says, And I saw heaven opened, and there he saw the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the one who was worthy to open that book, the one who, who re- re- records that book that records the, the plan of redemption. And if you go on reading in that fifth chapter, you'll see the outstanding attention there that's paid to Christ. He's worthy, and so all eyes are transfixed upon him. A few weeks ago, 
I was uh, speaking to Charlotte as she went out the door on the, after the Sunday evening service. This was right after I had preached the, the first message in this series on the return. And she was commenting on the general thrust of our ministry. Uh, we often say around here that the purpose of our ministry is Christ. Everything that we do is Christ. Everything centers on him. Everything in the world centers on Jesus Christ. And there are many ministries... Uh, Many churches that you can go to that say the same, but they're not really all focused on him. Ministries, many of them have become inwardly focused, and they have what you might call a God aura. And what I mean by that is they have a religious halo over their head, which means that they're slanted and they're influenced by God. But to say that Christ is all that they do would be a stretch. And that's why you see that there are many people that choose churches based upon preferences. Uh, People don't look for the doctrine in the church, and they don't think, well, does this church uh, honor Christ? Is this a church that speaks only from the Word of God? Is this a church that focuses only on Him? And rather than to ask those questions, they're asking different things. They're asking things like, how is the music of that church going to grab me? How are my senses going to be satisfied when I go? Am I going to be fulfilled in the way that I expect? And so it starts with them. And if Christ can somehow fit into their sensations, that's fine. But they're not going to start with Christ. The focus is not uh, as it is in heaven, all on Christ. It's not as it will be on the earth when Christ comes again, that the focus is all on him and his will is enforced. But most people today are far more concerned about the issue of free will than they are about God's will. And they don't want anybody else to control their will. They don't want anyone to infringe upon their will. But that is exactly the point of Christ's return. He comes to impose his will upon the earth as it is in heaven. Now in chapter 5 there, we see that all attention in heaven is, is on Christ. And when he comes again, his will is going to be done on earth so that both heaven and earth agree that everything is Christ. And that's why you see in verse number 15 of this 19th chapter, it says that Jesus is coming to rule with the rod of iron. So we don't mind having a ministry that's focused on Christ. We don't mind uh, having Christ tell us what to do and surrendering everything to Christ's will. I have no problem with that because I know this, that whenever I go my own way and I go by my own will, I'm going to run into trouble. And I would be lying to you if I said that sometimes that doesn't happen, that sometimes what we're doing is our will rather than God's will. And we have to be attuned to that, what God's will is. And if you really want to know the thrust of the New Testament epistles and what it all boils down to, you can distill it to this. It's the constant teaching of shoving our will aside so that we do the will of God. And that's the way it's going to be like when Christ comes to this earth. Now, from this point of our reading there, as we were looking in chapter 5, that scroll is handed to Christ. The seven seals are opened, and with the opening of each one of those seals, there is a step-by-step progression of God's plan to restore his glory to the ends of the earth. And then when we reach this 19th chapter, all the seals on that scroll have been opened. And now earth is prepared. God has gathered the world's armies together to Armageddon. And there they will see heaven opened, and Christ will be revealed. Now, we're not going to talk about Armageddon tonight. Uh, You're going to have to wait three weeks till we get to that, and we're going to discuss it then, and we'll see what 
Christ does on that fateful day. But for now, in these messages that are building up to that, we're looking at the description of the king. All eyes are fixed upon him, and he stares back with those eyes that blaze like a flame of fire. And so we find in these six verses uh, just uh, much information, chock full of information about him. Now let me just quickly give you the previous points of our discussion. First, we talked about the anticipation of Christ's return. And that was our discussion about the multitudes of, of scriptural references that tell us that Christ is going to return to this earth. And from the first time that we see it in Genesis 3.15 to the last time that we see it in Revelation, there are hundreds of references to Christ's return. There are so many of them that next to faith, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is the most talked about doctrine of Scripture. Secondly, we talked about the appearance of Christ. And we weren't talking about what he wears or what he personally looks like, but we were talking about the time of his appearing and the phases of it and the suddenness of it. Now, one thing that's surely true, and, and there are some that teach this, that the world is going to gradually grow into the kingdom of Christ. Things are going to get better, and, and uh, the world is going to be reached for Christ, and gradually Christ's kingdom will come in. That's not the picture that we get in Revelation. This is a sudden appearing. Things are not going to slowly get better. For the kingdom of Christ to come, there has to be a radical overthrow of the world system. It happens suddenly. And so after seven years of tribulation and the world is being prepared for Christ's return, it happens with swiftness. God or Christ destroys all the opposition in one sweeping blow and then his kingdom begins. Thirdly, we talked about the appellations of Christ. Those are the names that we find in the passage. One of the names, we don't know. The Bible says that it's a mystery, it's majestic, it's beyond human understanding. Verse number 12 says, there is a name that no one knows but Christ. But there are other names that are given in the passage. He's called faithful and true. He's called the word of God. And that's the, uh, the description of that is given by the apostle John in the gospel of John in the first chapter. And then we also see he's known as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so when he comes, the world is not going to mistake who he is. Fourthly, and this was the subject of the message last week, which was the anger of Christ. And most people know far too little about this side of Christ. This is part of his character. And it doesn't mean that he has an alter ego. He, he's not like uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is a loving God, and he's a loving God all of the time. But as strange as it may seem, his anger is an expression of his love. And that's because his anger is a righteous anger, an anger that is displayed for the benefit of his children. Now, the wickedness of this sin-cursed world uh, serves to darken our contentment with Christ. And as long as there is sin in the world, we're burdened by it. And so a Christian has been given the life of Christ. And whatever opposes Christ also opposes us. And so God is unhappy with sin, and that makes us unhappy with sin. And what Christ will come to do is to rid the universe of sin so that we're no longer plagued with it. And to do that, he has to come to this earth to destroy men in their wickedness. And he does that out of love for his own righteous character and for his people that love that same righteousness. So the destruction of the wicked is a product of his holy divine justice. It's never served out of vindictive malice. And so when he comes to conquer, his motivation is not sinful, 
like men, man's motivation is. It's not prideful. There is no sinful ambition in it. Perfect holiness is the only reason. Well, we're ready to move on from that. We want to take up uh, something different tonight, another part of the study. And so the fifth part that I want to speak to you about tonight is the apparel of Christ. And now we are ready to talk about his clothing. What does he wear? Well, the clothing is very significant. And precisely because it is significant, that's why we're told about it here. What a person wears says a lot about him. In fact, that's one of the ways that we judge people. Sometimes we do it rightly. Most often we do it wrongly. But all of us pay attention to clothing. Now, the wrong way to do it is the way that James describes it. So I want you to go over to the book of James for just a minute, and we're going to look at this. Uh, maybe you don't think it's the right time for us to talk about this, but I do believe that everything that we look at in the Bible, somehow we're going to talk about Christ. Uh, everything that we have here is about Christ. It's some way connected to him, and that's the focus of our ministry, so everything that we say somehow is going to be about him. So I think it's a good time for us to bring this in. Uh, we've had the opportunity to talk about many, many different Bible doctrines when we go through the Bible uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So we, we, we need to pay attention here in chapter 2 and see what James says about this issue of clothing. Now look at verse number 1, if you would. James 2, verse number 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit there, or sit uh, here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Now there is where we see an overbalance of emphasis on clothing. And, and uh, this is when we judge a person based upon what they wear, and we discriminate against them because of their clothing. Now William MacDonald describes this as he quotes from another author. He says, The scene is the local assembly of Christians. A distinguished-looking gentleman with fashionable clothing and expensive gold rings has just arrived. The usher bows and scrapes, then escorts the notable visitor to a prominent, conspicuous seat in the front. As soon as the usher gets back to the door, he finds that another visitor has arrived. This time, it is a poor man in humble attire. The expression, filthy clothes, does not necessarily mean that the man's clothes need cleaning. He is dressed poorly in keeping with his humble circumstances in life. This time the usher adroitly seeks to save the congregation from embarrassment by offering the visitor standing room at the rear or a place on the floor in front of his own seat. It seems incredible that anyone would ever act in this way. We would like to think that the illustration is overdrawn, but when we look into our own heart, we find that we often do make these artificial class distinctions among ourselves and thus become judges with evil thoughts. Now there is the wrong way to deal with clothing. We ought not ever to discriminate against anyone in church because of what they wear. But I'd also remind you of this, that there are people that are lost 
And they don't have the same sensitivity when they come to church wearing some type of inappropriate clothing. And there is a type of clothing that's inappropriate to wear to church. And I'm speaking here about being modest. You you need to be modest when you come to church. But we need to be sensitive about it because there are people that don't know this yet. People haven't learned what they need to know, so we handle them in the right way. People need the gospel, and we're not going to be able to clean them up before they get saved. And neither should we try to do that. We're fooling ourselves, and we're going against Scripture when we try to do that. But on the other hand, people that are saved, and they do become a part of the church we still never deal with them on the basis of the quality of their clothing. Although we do need to talk to them about the quantity of it. I mean, I mean no matter uh, what the value of your clothing is, you can be neat and respectful, and the quantity of your clothing needs to be right. And so while the Bible forbids discrimination in any form based upon a person's clothing, it does tell us that we need to dress modestly when we come to church. Now, I'm going to leave that part of it there, and if you want to ask me questions about it later, you want to know about ties, and you want to know about what the pastor wears, and, well, we can deal with that separately at another time. But I I just want you to know that clothing is covered in Scripture, and it's not optional. You have to have it. The quantity of it is important. How you dress can sometimes reveal really what's in your heart. So we go on in this passage, and now we want to look at how Christ is dressed. Verse number 12 says, His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. On his head were many crowns. These are diadems of divinity. I want to call your attention to the original word that we find in the Scripture that tells us about the crowns. It's the word diadema. And our English word diadem could actually be substituted here because a diadem is a crown of sovereignty. I've called it here a diadem of divinity, and that's because we all agree. Anyone who respects God knows that he's greater than man, and God, by his very nature, is sovereign. Now, you notice here that it says he has many crowns. And perhaps we would think that one crown, that would be sufficient for him to wear, but there's a purpose why he wears many crowns. And it's because it's like all the rulers of the world in every place have their crowns removed and those crowns are put upon the head of Christ so that there's no one who rules anywhere, rules anywhere but him. And this is a contrast to what we find uh, to the description of Satan in chapter 12. And Satan there, there is seen as a red dragon who has seven heads and he has a crown on each of those seven heads. And then the Antichrist, he also wears many crowns. He's seen as a creature that has uh, ten horns and uh, ten crowns on those horns, and that represents the confederation of ten kings that have joined with him. And so you have all these crowns that are spread about through all the different kingdoms of the world, and all of those crowns are removed, and they're put upon the head of Christ. So here Christ has all the crowns. And these aren't the crowns that... We saw earlier, whenever I talk about crowns, people always want to bring up uh, talking about the crowns that are cast before the throne. What about the crowns cast before the thrones? Well, this is a different word. That's the word stephanos, and uh, that is a word that means a crown that's won like a prize, a wreath like would be won at the Olympic Games. That's a different type of crown. This crown is a crown, or all of these crowns are crowns of sovereign ruling. So all kings are going to surrender their crowns to Christ. Satan will surrender that authority that he usurped by becoming the god of this world. All of Satan's vassals will give up their thrones, 
and then Christ will rule them all. They don't have any choice. And later on, we'll see why they have no choice. It's because they don't have any power to defeat him. And this is what kings do. They consolidate their power by force. And so a king that has a superior army, he overthrows another king, he conquers that king, and that king uh, gives him his authority and submits to the other king's authority, and he does it because he doesn't have the power to resist. Here, we're talking about immeasurable power because we're talking about Jesus Christ. And you can look in verse number 15 that he has so much power that all that he needs to do is speak. His word alone is powerful enough to subdue all creatures in heaven and earth. Now, we remember that when Christ was here the first time, that Pilate planted a crown of thorns upon his head in a mocking manner. He fashioned that crown of thorns, wove these long thorns into a, into a crown, then pressed them down on his brow, and they, they pierced his skin, and blood ran down his face. This is not like that. There is no pain in this. In fact, the only pain that's here is the pain of his victims. And then God gave us a little bit of a prelude in the, uh, of how kings can be deposed in the book of Acts. Uh, kings have tried to stand up against Christ, and they continue to do so. Now, if you'll just go over to the book of Acts for just a minute in chapter 12, we can read here about the demise of wicked King Herod. Now, this is not the same King Herod that was king when Jesus was born. This is his grandson. Uh, this is Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of that, of that king that tried to kill Jesus when he was born. But this fellow has the same type of character as his grandfather. This is Herod that killed the apostle James. It's also Herod that threw Peter in prison. And you remember the story of how Peter was delivered from prison by an angel. Now, if you look at verse number 21 in Acts 12, it says, And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Now, there's what happens when you challenge God's authority. You see, God has myriads of ways to take people down. A king on a throne with the power of the Roman government behind him, uh, the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen up to that time, and all that it took was one angel of God to strike him down. God sent an angel, and he said, you take that fellow down. And the Bible says that he was eaten of worms, and then he died. Well, what else does Christ wear? Well, verse 13 says, and he was clothed, with a vesture dipped in blood. And so the next thing we see him wearing is the ruby red robe. Vesture, that's a robe-type garment. And the language that's used here is one of permanency. He is permanently clothed with a regal robe. He never surrenders that authority. And then when it uses the word dipped with a, a, a vesture dipped in blood. That's also a word. That's a, a word of permanency. It means that his enemies do not get up. It means they're utterly defeated. And, of course, they would be because the Bible says that they're going to be thrown into the wine press of his wrath. But what is the blood? Where did this blood come from? What is the blood? Now, we might be tempted to think, well, this is his blood. The carnage hasn't yet started at Armageddon. No blood has yet been shed there. And so whose blood is this? So perhaps 
we're, we're talking about the blood of redemption. Perhaps this is the blood that was, that was shed on the cross, and that was powerful blood. Uh, that was so powerful that it just takes that blood to cleanse all of the sins of, that have ever been committed in all of the world. But we're not talking about the blood of redemption here. Not the blood shed at the cross. That blood stained uh, the ground. It stained the cross. But we're not talking about his blood. Now, a few weeks ago, we read the prophecy in Isaiah that uh, pointed directly to what we're reading here in, in this passage in Revelation, and that was a foretelling of the revelation of Christ the King. Here's what Isaiah wrote, and, and maybe you'll remember this. Isaiah 63, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Now his blood, or his clothing rather, is stained with the blood of his enemies. Now there we're reading about this prediction of Armageddon. But we got a problem with this, and that is that Armageddon hasn't yet started. We don't get to that till we get down to verse number 17. And here these armies see Christ coming out of heaven, and he's already wearing blood-stained garments. So where does all that blood come from? Well, we need to be reminded of the, of the symbolism that we see here. Christ is a conqueror, and he was a conqueror before Armageddon. He's always been a conqueror. When Abraham went after Lot when those kings had taken him captive, who do you think it was that went before Abraham and helped him defeat all of those kings? And when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, who was it that overthrew the Egyptian army in the Red Sea? And then think about Joshua when he went into Canaan. Who was it that threw down those great hailstones from heaven and, and killed people in Canaan and helped Joshua to win the battle? Well, let, let me read this to you from Joshua chapter 10. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them all along the way that goeth up to Beth Horn and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah and they died. There were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. There was God going before, and he's the victor, the conqueror. Then another time, there, there were 185,000 Assyrians that were encamped against Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah humbled himself before God and, and asked God to help him. And God promised him that the Assyrians would never even fire a shot against him. And so that night before... God slew 185,000 Assyrians before they even had a chance to fire a shot. And so we see that Christ is battle-tested. He wears the robes that are already stained with the blood of his enemies. And you have to imagine how fearsome a sight this must be. All of these armies are gathered to Armageddon. None of the people that ever stood before God uh, ever had a chance against him, and neither will these. And when he comes out, they already see that he has the blood-stained garments. And so they're not clothes of redemption, they're clothes of judgment. They're the clothes of an executioner. They're the clothes of someone who enforces the penalty of God's justice. 
Now, we're not talking about a change in God's character. This is the way that it's always been. From all those victories that are, that are in the Old Testament, this is the way that God has always been. He's always been about the business of justice and always been about protection of his people. Well, there's one more part that I want to include in this before we, before we finish tonight. Uh, Armageddon is still looming out there, and we're going to get to that. But sixthly, we want to talk about the armies of Christ. Now look again at verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And then the 14th verse, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Christ is coming to make war. And I know he doesn't need an army, but here he has one. And I guess you could say that uh, this army is really more of an entourage because they're not going to do very much fighting. Uh, They're not doing much in the battle. What Jesus does, according to verse 15, is just speak the word and all of it's done. But there is an army. There there is an army that's coming back with him. So we're going to just quickly talk about the regiments of this army. Who are they? Who is coming back with Christ? Well, first of all, there's the core of the church. The core of the church. The church is coming back with Christ. Now, remember, the church has been raptured before the tribulation period, and the church has been married to Christ as the bride. And the millennial kingdom that's coming, that's the time that the world celebrates this great wedding that's taken place between Christ and his bride. And so you know that when Christ comes back, he's going to bring the bride with him. And it's going to be some bride, because this is a bride that wears combat boots. I mean, this is a bride with her clean, white, shining garments wearing combat boots. I mean, just get that picture into your head. White robes and combat boots. Who else is in it? Who's in the army? Well, secondly, there's the ticked-off tribulation saints. Uh, These are also white-robed people. They're people that have been slain by the Antichrist because they wouldn't take the number of his name. And so we find them in the seventh chapter. They're all gathered around the throne. They're wearing white robes. They have palms in their hands. And one of the elders asks a question, calling John's attention to them, and he says, who are these that are dressed in all of these white robes? And then he answers his own question. He says, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so you have all of these ticked-off people that were killed during uh, the tribulation by the Antichrist. And in verse or chapter number 6, we find there they are anxious for their revenge. In chapter 6 it says, And when, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And so this group, that, they're also coming back to earth, and they're coming to watch Christ take care of their enemies. They get their vengeance. It was promised to them. And they asked for that vengeance. They asked for relief and what we called all of those imprecatory prayers, asking God for judgment on their enemies. Thirdly, another regiment in this army of Christ is Enoch's enforcers. Now, Enoch prophesied that Christ would return from heaven with ten thousands of his saints. 
Enoch's prophecy is recorded for us in the book of Jude. You may remember that we don't find that prophecy at all in the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit must have revealed that to Jude when he wrote it, or Christ might have told it to him when, uh, when he was upon the earth. But regardless, Jude tells us that there was this godly prophet, Enoch, who lived in the time before the flood, and he prophesied that Christ would return with his army from heaven. And then God took him out of the world. He was translated. Enoch never died. He was taken into heaven. And I don't think that when he gave that prophecy, when he said the saints of God are coming, ten thousands of his saints are coming, that Enoch said, but I'm not coming with them. No, I think Enoch was including himself in that number. And there's some people that, that argue about that. When are the Old Testament saints going to be resurrected? I happen to believe that they'll, they'll be taken up at the time uh, that Christ comes back in the rapture. The graves will be open and the Old Testament saints will go up then. But there are others who think, well, no, it comes at the end of the tribulation time. That's when Old Testament saints are resurrected. But regardless, they are in the first resurrection. And so I think that they are also coming, coming back with Christ. And so you have all these people in the Old Testament that were believers. You have Adam and Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah, all the great prophets, all the believing kings, all the rank and file of Israel that did believe in true Jehovah God. They're coming back to, with this army and to be with Christ. So you have all the saints that are in the church, all the ones that are in the tribulation, all the saints that are, that are in the Old Testament time, all of these come to accompany Christ when he returns. But then there's one last group that's also coming, and we'll call these the winged warriors. I guess you could call this God's Air Force because they're the holy elect angels. These are the ones that did not join Satan in his rebellion. So we're talking about angels here that are confirmed in their holiness. Uh, they remained faithful. They had one objective, and that was to serve God, to do everything that God tells them to do. This is the same group in that story about Elisha when the Syrian army had encamped against Samaria. If you remember that story, Elisha sent his servant to check this out, and he went down there to Samaria, and he saw all of these Syrians that had surrounded it, and he was terribly afraid because of that. So he went back to Elisha to tell him about it, and in 2 Kings chapter 6 it says, And when the servant of that man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Horses and chariots of fire, those are God's angels. Jesus mentions them in Matthew 24 in connection with his coming. He said, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In verse 31, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so this is what the angels are going to do. They're going to gather up all the people that are in heaven. They'll call this army together, the church corps, the ticked-off tribulation saints, Enoch's enforcers, and then together with the winged warriors, 
they join up with Christ at the rendezvous point, and they come to this earth in an assault that the world has never seen before. I mean, you talk about Waterloo and the, and the charge of the light brigade and Pickett's charge and D-Day. It's nothing compared to what happens here. And so almost before it even starts, it's over. We're not talking about um, slugging it out in the trenches and, and there are no clever tactical maneuvers that take place. It's just the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he comes to slay them with the word of his mouth. And so the king comes with a, a never-before-seen army like this. You know, I've never been in the army, never, never been in, in the uh, armed forces. I don't like public showers. I don't like sleeping with snoring men. But I wouldn't mind, I'm not going to mind being in this army because you know what? I'll never have to take a bullet. And that's okay with me. That's the kind of army I want to be in. You never have to take a bullet. And if you know Christ, you'll be in his army and you'll come back with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spent in your word tonight. And we thank you for Jesus Christ who's coming back to this earth. I just pray, Lord, that everyone here tonight knows you. And, and they will be in this army that comes back. And when the millennial kingdom comes, we'll all be here to, to rule and to reign with you. Speak to our hearts tonight, Lord, and just give us power for this week. Help us to live for you. And we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.